1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, New Books Network audience. I am your host today, Erica Monahan, and I have the great pleasure today to interview Jackson Lears about his new book called "Animal Spirits: From the American Pursuit of Vitality from Camp Meeting to Wall Street." Jackson Lears is the Board of Governors Distinguished Professor of History. at Rutgers University, and he is also editor-in-chief of the excellent journal Raritan, a quarterly review. He is the author of several books, His, which I'm going to read the titles because they give some sense of the expertise that he brings to the conversation today. His first Monograph published in 2009 was Rebirth of a Nation, The Making of Modern America, 1877 to 1920. He's also written Something for Nothing, Luck in America. He's written on um, ideas about abundance in American culture. His most recent book, Before Animal Spirits, was called No Place of Grace. Anti-Modernism and the Transformation of American Culture, 1880 to 1920, and so it's a real honor to get to speak with him today, and today we are talking about animal spirits. My first question, as in traditional New Books Network style, however, is that we always like to ask, uh, Jackson, please tell us uh, how you became a historian.
2: Happily, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I, I might mention parenthetically that the uh, no place of grace was actually my first book, not my most recent one before uh, animal spirits. But uh, that that's a minor. You you can alter that in in editing if you want. Uh, it's not not a big issue. Um, but yeah, how did I become a historian? I, I was I was coming of age in the in the middle and later sixties and. Um I was confronting what a lot of uh, young men in my age category and s- social strata were doing, which was uh, wh- how to figure out alternatives to going into the, uh, the world of business. In my case, it was a small business world. My father... Uh, owned a business, a, a furniture business in, in Annapolis, Maryland, and I was expected along with my brother to c- go in and, and uh, take over after graduating from college, but I was drawn toward literature. I was an English major at the University of Virginia, uh, and that was my real uh, preference and pleasure, uh, was exploring the world of, of uh, British and American literature I became frustrated by that because the, the new criticism, as it was called, was regnant hegemonic at the time at the uh, EVA, and that excluded consideration of history and biography from uh, reading literary texts. And the more I uh, thought about it, uh, the more I thought that you can't really understand literature without integrating history and and, uh, and biography. Uh, I was encouraged uh, to turn in this direction as well uh, by the political atmosphere at the time, which was shaped by the Vietnam War and my sense that uh, the way literature was taught at uh, the University of Virginia and most other universities isolated it from political and and public concerns. So I began to take more and more history courses. And I learned a lot more about the history of Vietnam, among other places, and about the uh, history of French and US uh, imperialism in that part of the world so uh, that's what drew me into into uh, history but I didn't want to give up uh, literature altogether so ultimately I became uh, involved in 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 uh, cultural history as a way of sort of straddling the divide uh, between disciplines and that's where I've stayed ever since but what what really uh, sort of confirm me in my choice, uh, and also in my choice of subjects, uh, was uh, my experience as a naval officer uh, in this period. Even though I was opposed to the Vietnam War, like most people in my part of the world, uh, I assumed that uh, if you were male and of a certain age, you would just have to go into the military at some point. So I chose in order uh, to... uh, Pick what was the most congenial uh, option uh, and, and an al- alternative to allowing myself to be drafted and giving myself some choice. I, I uh, joined Naval ROTC and uh, uh and was commissioned an officer, uh, with a top secret clearance, uh, on a ship that, uh, that carried, uh, nuclear weapons, even though they denied that they carried them. And, uh, I was a cryptographer who had the responsibility for decrypting the message that might've launched those nuclear weapons in the, in a, uh, combat situation. Uh, and I got to thinking very hard about that role, uh, and, uh, was told ultimately uh, that I had to uh, have an interview with the chaplain to join what was called a sealed authenticator system. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the double uh, decryption of a message involved a team that was called the sealed authenticator system team. Uh, and in order to join this uh, team, you had to have an interview with the chaplain to see as my department had told me if I had any particular ax to grind. For or against nuclear war? Now, in other words, they wanted a new—they wanted a neutral technocrat. They didn't want uh, a militarist ideologue, and they didn't want a pacifist. And I decided I couldn't be that neutral technocrat, and this is what got me into uh, reading about uh, modernity in the largest sense, uh, and. I had I didn't know it at the time but I, I only later did I read Max Weber and the Frankfurt School and other theorists of modernity uh, but I was reading about uh, the rationalization as Weber would call it uh, of everyday life uh, that is the uh, uh, the the focus on uh again uh, n- becoming a neutral technician uh, as the uh Uh, the ultimate uh, embrace of modernity. And uh, so it was really while I was in the Navy that I began to examine the issues that uh, shaped much of the rest of my uh, scholarly life, which was uh, not just the meanings of modernity, but the ways people uh, became discontent with it and figured out alternatives to it or tried to uh, in their everyday lives and in their larger intellectual lives. So uh, the, the question of modernity loomed very large for me at a, at a very personal level. Uh, to make a long story short, I did end up getting honorably discharged from the Navy as a conscientious objector. Uh, and that in, in in turn shaped my uh, thinking about uh, not only about war in subsequent Years, but about uh, the history of American wars, uh, how we got into them, how we might have avoided them, how we might more profitably uh, take a different path in the future. So, uh, so that's what what shaped my larger career choices uh, as as I was uh, coming of age in the sixties and and uh, early nineteen seventies.
0: Thank you so much for that. Hearing this, um, this the this answer with you, of your personal experience really makes so much more poignant the passages you have in this book about the, um, you know, sometimes chest thumping lead up to wars in American history. And it also um, makes um, it makes kind of quite apparent the, um, the some of the ways you talk about John Maynard Keyes, whom I'd like to ask you about later. But um, I, I, I so appreciate this uh, interest in modernity, and you know, as you know, I'm a historian of the Russian Empire, where one of the um, abiding debates of the 19th century between Westernizers and Slavophiles was um, the the Slavophiles who were against the you know, modernizing West. Really, um, one of their biggest critiques was that neutral technocratic world of bureaucratic proceduralism, and and can we find alternatives? And so, and while I think that. Um, well, while the Slavophiles, I, I would suggest, didn't find a workable alternative for the 20th and 21st centuries try as they might have, the, um, the way in which, you know, feeling is a, a thread running through this book, um, it, it was is just so exciting to read about. And with that, let me get right to the book. And and I want to ask you, I want to ask you about the title. What are animal humans? Um for me it was this title was a little bit odd i thought at first but as i read through the book you show that this is a term that has sustained use through time and maybe more surprisingly it was a positive term so you know what are animal spirits and why did you write a book called animal spirits
2: well the immediate nudge was the the depression of 2008 and and its aftermath uh, and the revival of John Maynard Keynes, the economist who had gone out of fashion during the neoliberal era, uh, the celebration of entrepreneurship led everyone to the, uh, to the work of Joseph uh, Schumpeter uh, and his uh, a celebration of the entrepreneur. And in, in what I discovered would fairly conventional terms in his, in his writing uh, as, as a kind of a triumphant uh, super masculine male overcoming uh, resistance and, and uh, uh, inertia and, and making things happen. Uh, so Keynes was, was suddenly rediscovered as, as a behavioral economist uh, realized that
1: uh,
2: emotions and, and uh, uh, consumer states of mind and investor states of mind uh really mattered uh, in in uh, in creating and sustaining prosperity and Keynes's great contribution in my view uh, as I discovered was uh, to emphasize that uh, I- investors were not entirely governed by uh, the kind of rational actor model of uh, uh, neoclassical economics uh, they they were not Uh, primarily moved by rational calculations regarding uh, the the, uh, expected payoff from the investments they were making. Instead, uh, they were moved by something more mysterious and ambiguous, what Keynes called animal spirits, the spontaneous urge to action. I just know this is going to work. This just feels right. Uh, And this is not about Ralph. uh, rational calculation, obviously, uh, and it was a whole different view of, of how uh, capitalism is animated and, and uh, energized. Um, there was more to this concept, I realized, than contemporary behavioral economists made of it. Uh, there was a book by a couple of them uh, called Animal Spirits at the time, uh, but it attempted to shackle animal spirits to conventional neoclassical economics. And, and in fact, uh, the more I looked into the concept of animal spirits and the more I uh, looked into Keynes, I discovered, well, he was not a conventional economist in any sense of the term. He was really much more of a kind of uh, wide ranging, interdisciplinary modernist thinker. Uh, and uh, there was more, uh, as I say, to the concept of animal spirits Uh than uh, was commonly understood by his rehabilitators uh, but even more than Keynes himself understood as I began to look into the cultural history uh, of the term uh, I discovered there were multiple meanings of animal spirits and that the phrase itself had been uh, in use for centuries Uh, and and it had two basic meanings I discovered. The first was personal, that is that animal spirits were a term for the link between body and mind, or or body and soul, uh, or another term, in other words, for for vitality, for vital force uh, in individuals. Uh, But there was also a cosmic meaning, uh, and animal spirits also uh, could refer to the energy that animates the universe, uh, rocks, trees, wolves, bears, humans, uh, the kind of energy that went by the name of mana in uh, anthropologist terms when they looked at indigenous people's uh, concepts of the energy at the core of the world, uh, or in later eras uh, in, in uh, Jewish or Christian traditions, uh, spirit or God. God. Uh, but also in recent centuries, uh, I discovered uh, that another source of, of vital force uh, was capital. Uh, and uh, this uh, took me back to John Maynard Keynes, for whom capital is a kind of uh, vitalizing, energizing force. Uh, and uh, my former student, Gene McCarraher, in writing about what he calls the enchantments of mammon, has referred to capital as uh, Or capitalism rather, as the religion of modernity, uh, which we can boil down by focusing on uh, the notion of the etymological origins of credit, uh, which are rooted in credo, uh, I believe. So there is a kind of faith-based dimension uh, to capitalism that gets overlooked uh, with all of our uh, focus on uh, economic rationality and technocratic rationality in some ways this is a <laughs> this is itself as a giant con game or scam uh is the papering over of the irrationality and unpredictability uh of uh, capital movements uh, uh with this rhetoric of of, of uh, reason and often quantified reason at that uh and and uh, uh so it's very uh the, the the book ends up being very much a, a, an an exploration of the other and largely unexplored side of capitalism, the emotional history of capitalism, uh, which is you know not reducible uh, to quantitative uh, market research or investment analysis. Uh, just as Keynes said, uh, it's not about rational calculation; it's about uh, impulse. So. Uh, this is a, animal spirits became this huge subject <laughs> that threatened to overwhelm me at times. And I realized that, it, that the history of the phrase also linked up with uh, the popular history of uh, what you might call vitalism. That is the fascination with a life force uh, that took many forms and was often uh, explored by serious philosophers, but also by uh uh, by popular uh, self-help writers and other thinkers, uh, including uh, uh, all sorts of practitioners whom we might think of as cranks now, like mes- uh, mesmerists and, and early positive thinkers and clairvoyants. Uh, they're all searching for the same kind of invisible force, uh, either in individuals or in the universe uh, as a whole. And the reverend, the, the problem with this, this uh, Uh, vitalist quest, uh, as I discovered, uh, was that it it often uh, uh, developed a reverence for sheer raw power, uh, either personal power or cosmic power. Uh, The the French philosopher Henri Bergson called it the élan vital. Uh, And this élan vital, this life force, was at bottom amoral. Uh, it, it could be used for all kinds of purposes. And the dark side of it, uh, was, uh, not, o- not only a, uh, a racist tinge in many ways, uh, uh, but also a focus even more intensely on, uh, regeneration through violence and, and war. So the theme of regenerative war, uh, is also in place in this book alongside the theme of, of, uh uh irrational capitalism and the uh uh the kind of em- emotional uh, lurchings uh of the business cycle that parallel uh the uh, uh the monetary lurchings uh from from uh, from rise to ruin and back again uh so this is uh this is how i ended up with this kind of uh Lumbering behemoth of a book, which attempts to pull together these uh, uh, these various strands of both animal spirits and and uh, popular vitalism.
0: Thank you so much. Yes, there there are so many strands in this in this book. is and I, you know, reading it, you take this story of vitalism, you weave it through histories of, of religion, of science, medicine, economics, politics, literature, race. They they all kind of make a make a showing and it, it's part of what makes it so stimulating and um you know to come back to this to to bring it back to economics but um before doing so thinking about how um what roles these other strands play in how economies um, develop and seem to behave right now for example um, Jill Lepore has written a bit about how Elon Musk has been so, and, and so many other um, Silicon Valley technocrat entrepreneurs are so inter- are so inspired by scientific literature. Um, in the with before the Russian Revolution, we people talk about how Lenin was more inspired by the novel, the 19th century novel, What Is to Be Done, than by Marx himself, perhaps. And so, so in in the telling the story of eco- economies. I think that you've really tapped into the importance of bringing in these other strands, but um, but to to go to my next question and um, and uh, one that has to do with the developments of economics, you show all these people being baffled by cycles as you know capitalism, for lack of a better term, emerges. And, you, and a very early one is the story of John Law, who is involved, loses a lot in one of the very early bubbles in 1720, the South Sea bubble. And, and you talk about, quoting a, a moment in the book, someone writes, It's a shame, really, that he did not place limits on his boundless imagination, for he has something great about him. One of Law's aristocratic um patrons wrote this about him after his disgrace and, and, and said, continuing the quote, he has perished for too grand a conception of himself. And when I read that just in these weeks of Sam Bankman Fried's um arrest and, and, and the story being part of his grand conception of effective altruism that will just make money um for good, it it kind of resonated. And I just wanted to ask you, um, I, maybe to comment a little bit about that having having writ- written this history um or
2: well i i th- I, uh, I think that's an uh, uh, a fascinating question, and I think there's certainly a a, a history of uh, american financiers uh, both the uh, Uh, confidence men and those who strove to be more legitimate uh, seeking uh, this kind of uh, grandiose conception of themselves uh, because there's always been something uh, in, in our work obsessed Protestant culture uh, there's been something suspicious about easy money, about quick money, uh, about over, overnight wealth. Even as it's constantly longed for and dreamed of, uh, it's also uh, mistrusted uh, as, as something that you know easy come, easy go, and uh, uh, and it hasn't been earned somehow. So uh, people like Jay Gould in the 19th century and and others who made a, a great deal of money from uh, uh from speculative uh adventures in in uh the capital markets uh were were deeply distrusted and they were often thought of as effeminate uh and uh this what and 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 and, and uh not reliable sorts of people not the sort of uh man you might want your daughter to marry uh so figures like Rockefeller, John D. Senior, and, and uh, Andrew Carnegie, uh, and others in the Gilded Age uh, of so-called robber barons, uh, as Matthew jo- Josephson uh, called them, uh, influentially, uh, these, these people uh, really made their money from uh, doing deals cleverly, uh, from buying and selling enterprises at the, re- at the right moment uh, certainly, that was the case with with uh, both Carnegie and, and uh, Rockefeller, and it, and it was also the case uh, with Bill Gates, for example, in more recent times, uh, in in his uh, uh, selling of the uh, Microsoft operating system to uh, IBM, which at the time was you know the the uh, the big shot in the world of uh, computers in the nineteen eighties, and uh, uh, and he, so. Every, every IBM computer from the time uh, Bill Gates made this deal was going to contain uh, an MS-DOS uh, operating system. And uh, this is what really made uh, Microsoft the giant that it became, uh, not his technical genius, uh, but what but, but Gates, Carnegie and Rockefeller, and you can pick other examples I'm sure all wanted to do uh, was to associate themselves with productive industry and hard work, uh, and something that really made a contribution uh, to society, technical innovation uh, and uh, Carnegie, of course, in the in in the steel industry, uh, could and, and Rockefeller and oil could both present themselves as as sort of fundamental production-oriented capitalists, when when really that you know their big money came from deal making, and I think that's true of uh, of Gates and uh, the others who've succeeded him. Uh, so guys like Sam Bankman-Fried. Are in the position of Jay Gould, and they've got to justify themselves even more. So they will they will go out even on even farther out on a limb and talk about uh, money and altruism. But uh, but there's this tendency to want to justify and explain oneself even among uh, the, the wealthiest and most successful uh, capitalists, because uh, money itself is still not uh, regarded with with. Uh, all you know un- 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 uh, uninflected uh, enthusiasm there's always a, a hint of doubt about where where it come from, where it came from, and how it was made, and so on.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: Um, thank you. Next, I want to ask you about Adam Smith, who is um, who plays an important role in uh, your history. And I was struck um, where you talk about um, Adam Smith's maybe lesser known um, earlier book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, where um, Adam Smith, uh, you have a quote that I'll just read here. And he says, The rich divide with the poor the produce of all their improvements. They are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessities of life which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants, and thus without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society and afford the means to the multiplication of the species." Now, when I read about this redistribution um, in the in the quoted passage, this is not the invisible hand that I think we typically hear about when we talk about Adam Smith. So, could you please explain that to me?
2: I'll try. Uh, uh, Smith, Smith is uh, is a fascinating figure for a lot of reasons, and and one of them is that he's much more complicated than his. Devotees among the apologists for laissez faire uh, realize. Uh, he's complicated uh, partly. Th- this is an expression, this quotation that you read it is an expression of his egalitarian sentiments, which were genuine and real, and also his assumption that uh, pe- people in enterprise, enterprising uh, and successful uh, businessmen uh, were. were uh, Operating in a in, within a network of uh, community and familial, uh, and even larger public obligations, that they weren't just autonomous, free-floating uh, individual wealth machines, uh, but that they had a, a network. Uh, they were connected to a network of, of obligations and responsibilities, uh, and and uh, Smith took that. That network and its persistence for granted. Uh, so there's a certain naivete in this quote, uh, and an assumption that uh, that rich people will always do the right thing and uh, and and will divide up their uh, their wealth uh, uh, evenly and and justly. Uh, and uh, we can look at, at that as a kind of invincible innocence, I think, uh, and uh, and a sign of Smith's isolation from uh everyday economic practices in the in university life uh and in tutoring uh rich men's sons but he's also uh i think uh innocent in his uh uh lack of interest in finance capital there's there's a very little attention paid to finance capitalism in in either certainly in the theory of moral sentiments but also in in uh the Wealth of Nations, uh, where the the chief impulse is all about steady, the chief impulse of, of uh, wealth creation is all about the steady betterment of one's position, uh, and and uh, that I uh, it, it, so it's all about a, a you know a, uh, a nation of shopkeepers, as as uh, uh, he's he's so often uh, described as as uh, evoking, and uh, I think uh, there is a huge element of truth to that. Uh, but that's not the whole story, and there are lots of things going on even while he's writing *The Wealth of Nations* uh, in finance capital that uh, that are not about just the uh, the steady uh, betterment of oneself and one's family and one's community, but uh, uh, but are about you know getting rich very quickly, overnight, through any means possible. And, and that's not in Smith, that's missing, uh, which is why I like to write about Daniel Defoe in this book as, a, as an alternative, who was not only a famous novelist, uh, but, a, but a frequent and, and uh, usually feckless investor, uh, but who wrote very interesting things about credit, uh, and it, its invisibility, its pervasiveness, and its absolute necessity to the conduct of economic life.
0: Yeah, that um, it, the parts on, uh, about Defoe are great. I do um, recommend everyone read the book because we won't cover everything today. Um, But I, but next I want to, I want to ask you about um, what the, this phrase that is the title of one of your chapters, um, you have a chapter on the reconfiguration of value. And I I wanted to ask you to um, tell us about this chapter and explain what you mean. What is this reconfiguration of value you are talking about and and when it, when does it happen?
2: Well, part of the reason I chose that phrase was was uh, to in, indicate that there was a broad shift, almost a reversal uh, of hierarchies, of um, moral hier- hierarchies in in, uh, uh, in late nineteenth-century America. But I didn't want to use the Nietzschean phrase. Um, um, Oh, oh, what is, it? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, senior movement here. Uh, not the, um, uh, not the reconfiguration of value. It's a milder phrase. Well, it's, it'll, it'll come back. Uh, the,
0: the. A uh, oh, will um, to power. Them?
2: No, no, it's, re- it's, uh, it's, it's related to that, but um, uh, it's the, the, the. Um, it implies a kind of a, a, a complete reversal of, of, uh, of values, and it's related to the. Uh, it uh, it's a it's a milder version of of, uh, of, of Nietzsche. Anyway, uh, uh, I can I can look that up.
0: <laughs> I do notice if, to interrupt. I noticed on, on page um 164. I'd marked this passage where you say, where sure. Nietzsche wrote, "Life itself is essentially appropriation, harm, the overpowering." of that which is foreign and weak, suppression, cruelty, the imposition of one's own forms, annexation, and at the very least, at the very mildest, exploitation. Um, And Yes,
2: I remember it now. (laughs) Transvaluation of value, that's Nietzsche's phrase, yes. And and, uh, the quote you read is, of course, a perfect example of that, the celebration of raw power for its own sake. And that's the Nietzschean thread that also leads to uh, to the celebration of, of uh, regenerative war and also uh, um, just uh, raw power uh, and uh, and even fascism. Uh, so that that's the uh, the ultimate expression of this reconfiguration of value is a transvaluation of, of, of value, but it doesn't go that far in the in American culture and. Uh, uh, what I'm talking about is, uh, uh, a recognition that, uh, forms of, of life, uh, human, uh, and, uh, and non-human animals, uh, included, uh, that had previously been thought of as inferior, uh, began to be re- <clears throat> revalued and, uh, revalued in, in, uh, uh, in ways for example that involved uh, s- studying animal consciousness and realizing that animals are not mere uh, automata that they are that they are in fact they're capable of emotions as as uh, Darwin wrote at great length uh, they're they're capable of playfulness they're capable of all kinds of modes of consciousness that humans can't uh, even fully imagine and, uh, and have not given them adequate credit for. So part of this is a revaluation of animal uh, consciousness. It's, there's also what I call a kind of imperial primitivism uh, directed toward darker skinned peoples uh, of the world in the US as well, African-Americans uh, included. Uh, and a, by imperial primitivism, I mean, uh, it's from the point of view uh, of the dominant uh, race and class, the you know the white privileged uh, uh, middle and upper classes, uh, and it's from their point of view that there's they're, uh, they begin to sense there's something missing in their own lives, some kind of uh, ease and grace, uh, some comfort in one's own skin, uh, and some vital energy and uh and they find this in uh the so-called lower races they find it in children they find it in in uh, uh even in criminals uh sometimes and they think well there's in spite of our superiority to these beings uh there's something they have that we could really appropriate and use and that we need in fact that we are missing and that is this uh this capacity for play and for spontaneous uh the expression of spontaneous vital energy uh so this is what moves things toward uh more and more uh, appreciation of uh the physical body and what it's capable of uh and and why it's even capable of these things uh so in recovering, uh, animality and physicality and vitality more generally, uh, middle and upper class Americans, educated, respectable people, uh, are, are recovering what they're, what they're, uh, what they feel might, might be lacking in them. And that is, uh, uh, part of the move toward, uh, the celebration of animal spirits as an end in themselves so that you have figures like excuse me the the uh the popular minister henry ward beecher uh who is uh uh accused but never convicted of uh uh, committing adultery with his with his best friend's wife and of scandalizing the whole congregation for the the fashionable Brooklyn church that he's pastor of, uh, and Beecher is condemned by a lot of guardians of respectable uh, morality, but at the same time uh, is celebrated as a uh, by others even if they dislike what he did or was accused of doing, uh, he's celebrated as a uh <clears throat> an embodiment of, of uh a vital force. So there was what you might call a kind of vitalist defense of, of uh of of Henry Ward Beecher and of and of uh, irregularities uh in uh, sexual behavior uh that that uh uh, that he that he was inevitably associated with but uh, what happens toward the end of the century is that a figure like Teddy Roosevelt arises and becomes a perfect uh, figure a, a, a perfect instrument for assimilating uh, this kind of popular vitalism <clears throat> excuse me to to... Uh, Conventional values, conventional moral values in particular. So he becomes an advocate of what he calls the strenuous life, uh, which includes regeneration through combat, uh, imperial adventure abroad. But it's always uh, imperial adventure, in his rhetoric at least, in the service of... of uh, uh, civilization itself and the, uh, uh, the, the uh, vindication of <clears throat> moral values that Americans all shared and the regeneration and revitalization of a masculinity that he felt had gone uh, tepid and soft. So uh, Roosevelt becomes a figure uh, who sort of assimilates uh, vitalism uh, to conventional uh middle class morality and to uh, imperial politics uh, and um, that's what, he plays a a, a kind of a hinge role in the in the uh, in the book for that reason
0: yeah um Thank you. In the parts where you where you talk about Veach, um, Beecher and his scandal, um, you have a remark where um, one, someone who knows him says, I, don't, I can't imagine why he isn't just breaking down of the pressure of his impending trial. And someone says he seems to just need to be on stage talking to a crowd. He does okay when he's doing that, as long as he's ranting to a, a crowd and I just had to t- work to vanquish Trump from my mind in those, right, 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 in those right. passages. But but to, oh. to to Teddy Roosevelt and yeah, that how you talk about the imperial gaze as it turned back on itself, they started to think we might be sort of a feat. And and T- Teddy Roosevelt's an antidote to that. And then you you know, taking that a bit further, you talk about how um there there was this maybe mutual earlier on a mutual well admiration between Teddy Roosevelt and Mussolini. And yes. the kind of this impulse to sport, the fascination with sport being associated with um, fascism, and I, I remember as a graduate student being a little bit disturbed um, ever well because I I'm a little bit of a jock and I like doing things with people, but I remember um, as a graduate student someone saying, you know people doing this exercise in unison is fascist and um
2: <laughs> right that's but, a typical grads remark yeah there you go The <laughs> you
0: know, this sentence in the book um that I want to read you a quote and then and then ask you about it um quote in europe body worship in europe body worship blended with imperial and eventually fascist agendas for revitalization in the united states it reinforced a belated bid for overseas empire and a cult of the strenuous life. This insistent physicality had a paradoxical side effect. It helped sustain and refashion the claims of the spirit. So maybe in the example of um, Teddy Roosevelt, you've already talked about that kind of valorization of the strenuous life, but how does it work that it refashions claims of the spirit?
2: Well, I th- I think uh, it's... In, as as people look looked at the body more and more, first of all, they 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 if they're middle or upper class, they're they're doing more and more work, just seated at desks. They have more and more sedentary lives. Uh, they don't walk up the stairs anymore. They push a button and the elevator takes them. That kind of thing. And they talk about this. They say we're not we're not doing anything anymore. Uh, and so the question arises not only uh why can't we get more exercise? <laughs> but also uh, and 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 of course there there are ways to do that and this generates the enthusiasm for, for football on college campuses for for boxing uh, among men, but also for bicycle riding among both sexes and and uh, uh, other other forms of physical activity. but there's also the question of what actually makes bodies go anyway? What gives us the impulse? There's the question, uh, this, the, the impulse to action, it gets back to question, to Keynes' phrase, the spontaneous impulse to action. What's behind this spontaneity? And that becomes more a more mysterious question. And it does raise the question of spirit. And if you think about animal spirits and the etymology of uh, the word spirits, it goes back to spiritu, which is breath, and so that's a physical process uh, that's tied up with uh, all sorts of spiritual meanings uh, at the same time. So, so what is it that uh, transports this uh, uh, this vital energy throughout our bodies that gives us uh, the impulse and the desire uh, to run out on the football team and start? grabbing people and pulling them to the ground and what you know this, the uh, the kinds of uh, activist impulses uh, raise questions about where where they come from and how is it uh, that that uh, uh, that we want and need this kind of physical activity <clears throat> And people like roosevelt were, were not going to give up uh, a dualistic world of spirit and matter altogether. they didn't want to reduce bodies. To mere materiality or mere machines, uh, they wanted to hang on to that spiritual dimension, which Roosevelt would often, you know, often reduce to a moral dimension, the dimension of character. But still, you couldn't see character, you couldn't see morality in the way that you could see bulging muscles. So I think that's that's how that that uh that, that's my exp- explanation for the uh, uh the growing fascination with spirit, and that of course leads into the 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 early 20th century vogue of positive thinking. Uh, you asked about Henrin, uh, Helen Williams, and this was an opportunity for women, and Wilmans was a, a, a great example, uh, I think, because she was so active and for so long, uh, to look at uh, what what is it that really makes us tick, and how can we put our minds uh, in the service of our larger selves you know how can we harness them to our uh to our largest ambitions and aims uh so so this is partly where where uh uh, where positive thinking comes from is that sense of where where does energy come from well it comes from the body but it also comes from the spirit or the soul or the mind
0: yeah um William James is another character that comes up quite a bit in this book. Um, who was he, and why is he significant in this history?
2: Well, I I think of William James as the, uh, the great philosopher, <clears throat> excuse me, of chance and uncertainty uh, in the Anglophone world in uh, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, because James was uh, uh, a, a connoisseur of maybe, he recoiled from certainty, and he uh, was concerned with with what he called uh, with, with building a new philosophical outlook that he called radical empiricism, which um, which, all, which led uh, I think uh, many um, in in many directions, but it took it took all kinds of experience seriously sources of knowledge, uh, everything from uh, uh, hallucina- hallucination and despair to uh, serious rational thought. So this is all about um, his, uh, uh, his openness uh, to uh, vital experience because he was nothing if not uh, a vitalist and a believer in the importance of the experiential basis of truth What he called pragmatic, uh, the the pragmatic method, was the value, the 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 judging of an idea on the basis of its actual consequences. And by consequences, he just he didn't mean its strict utility. He meant its consequences for us in our lives. And that's why uh, he celebrated what he called uh, the will to believe. Uh, because uh, religious people, he often thought, had a more dramatic sense of the importance of their lives and what they did. So religion was a source of vitality, whether or not uh, it was literally true in a way that you could verify empirically. Uh, it was a source of vitality, and that gave it a kind of truth uh, that that couldn't be contested. Uh, that it was true. It was true at least for the individual. And, uh, and that was what mattered to him. He was skeptical. He believed in positive thinking, in other words. Um, but he also recognized that positive thinking tend to gloss over uh, the darker dimensions of life, life's bitterer flavors. Uh, and religion, at least in its more serious forms, did not. Uh, so while he was not a conventional believer, he was open to the claims of uh, religion as well as to the darker side uh, of everyday life. Hmm. That's why he's such an important figure. He contains multitudes.
0: He contains multitudes and and pragmatism seems like a one of the better trends that America Indeed. can hopefully take some pride in. And um, you know, speaking of kind of this, uh, well, Positive thinking, for example, you know, that's something that's around now. And one thing that struck me as as I read this and um, in the 19th century, all of these, um, you know, you tell these stories of people, whether through positive thinking or hypnotism or mesmerism, kind of discovering tricks and magic to attain what they want. And it resonated, resonated so much with the self-help world we live in today from, you know, the You know, this manifesting your vision board, maybe of the '80s or '90s, the secret to to even today, we have Andrew Huberman on his science lab giving us a kind of science stuff up um, self help in pursuit of what sounds to me like vitality. Often, Um, and so so much of this has, you know, happened happened before, although we're historians, so we're committed to not seeing that. And we're always we see that, and we see the differences, and thinking about ways that, you know, really shifts. Um, one of the characters that, he didn't start this, but um, you talk about this this Yale economist, Irving Fisher. Um, um, and in that section, it seemed to me you're introducing a really new idea that doesn't, we can't quite track and map this onto the 19th century. And that's this world of big data. You talk about um, Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance capitalism, um, and so I, I wanted to ask you: Do I read you right there that um, that this is kind of a change that comes along as people grapple with statistics? But but yet there's a kind of some people are finding a vital vitalism in those as well. Um, so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that moment.
2: Uh, well, yeah, I think I think uh, Fisher's an important figure because he. Excuse me, he's obsessed with physical vitality and with the vitality of the nation. <clears throat> and he has all sorts of schemes and plans to tell people how to how to live, how to exercise, uh, and and uh, how to abstain from from uh, stimulants and and intoxicants um, and and pursue physical health. but at the same time, uh, his vitality is very carefully uh, quantified. And uh, he believes that pretty much anything can be quantified, uh, and for that matter, monetized, down to and including uh, a newborn baby. Uh, and he creates something of a mini-scandal, and he's quoted in the New York Times front page in 1910 of saying the sort of thing when out- outraged mothers write letters to the editor and so on. But, uh, but in fact, uh, this is a tendency <clears throat> that we see emerging and strengthening down to our own time. Uh, in, in, uh, in various ways and the monetization of uh, everyday life has become pretty, uh, pretty much a routine. So we have a linkage between vitality and money again. Uh, and, and, and here again, uh, statistics as, uh, as, as uh, Keynes like to say, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're great and necessary, uh, a great and necessary form of knowledge that allows us precise descriptions of phenomena in the present, uh, but they can't be used uh, to interpret everything, including subjective experience, and they can't be uh, they can't be used to predict the future either. So he was a dissenter uh, from the more imperial claims of statistics that people like Irving Fisher uh, would make. Uh, but but Fisher's view uh, tended to 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 uh, uh, to run out. You you mentioned uh, in, in one of your Notes uh, Shoshana Zuboff's uh, book on surveillance capitalism and the uh, the amount of data that we're all generating in our everyday lives that are that is being recorded and used to uh, to sell things or try to sell things to us and we all know this from our experience in using personal computers but. it seems to me uh this is um uh, this is yet yet another disturbing trend in the realm of big data but uh um but it is where the the world we're increasingly living in the quantified world
0: yeah absolutely um well, we could go on, on on about that for sure when i buy something i don't want it to continue to ask me if i want to buy something <laughs> um but at any rate um Okay, I want to I know I can't keep you all day and you have to move on, but so maybe the last um I want to go to the epilogue and where you talk about um what you t- you talk about you introduce Aldo Leopold who became a wonderful environmentalist and you talk a little bit about um you know the energy of the nat- natural worlds and the connections that we share with it in in a way that I very much appreciated um if that um that I take from it we we need to start, but that maybe there is a legitimate place to really start start taking these um, connections more seriously, and especially given gli- climate change as um, e- e- a, a, the challenge of our age that people will acknowledge to different degrees, but it's there. Um, and you talk about Lamarckian and he, Lamarck, and he comes up um, throughout the book a bit, and you in kind of he's usually placed in contra in in counter to darwinism's natural selection um but i but you i wanted to ask you and maybe tell us a little bit about this um you know is are we seeing a rehabilitation of lamarckism and is is it your message that there is a place to pay um to maybe give a little more space to whatever they may be ideas about vitalism in our world today, and going forward,
2: I do think there is a revival of Lamarck going on uh, in various ways, uh, and particularly in the in the field of of epigenetics, where geneticists are beginning to learn that they have to take other things into account, uh, which include the uh, the actual environment of uh, the organism. in uh, and its capacity to pass uh, environmental experiences on uh, to subsequent generations. So that uh, as, as some researchers have discovered, um, a generation of people who were malnourished as a result of the, of the Second World War uh, might pass on uh, that experience to their children, even if the children themselves have been adequately nourished. Uh, And these kinds of uh, data have shown up uh, in various forms, ranging from the microcosmic to the macrocosmic, like the example I just gave you. Uh, But this is an awareness that all sorts of things can be inherited and uh, and that organisms themselves play a role in their uh, in, in their inheritance uh, by constructing niches for themselves. So Lamarckism is also related to the, uh, the whole theory of, of uh, niche construction that Richard Lewontin and other biologists have, have developed in, in recent years, uh, recent decades, I should say. Uh, but more broadly than epigenetics, there is also an awareness, I think, in geology, uh, in botany, and other fields of the scintillation at the heart of all matter that seems uh, under the older Cartesian re- uh, regime t- uh, to be inert, uh, but actually, um, even if we're talking about uh, metal or if we're, certainly if we're talking about wood uh, and other apparently solid materials, uh, they are actually uh, teeming uh, with movement. <laughs> and. Uh, this this suggests to me, at least, a kind of broad uh, return of, of, uh, of vitalism to respectability. And I'm reminded of, of the anecdote that I told in my epilogue, uh, which was Aldo Leopold's encounter with the dying she-wolf uh, and, the, and the fierce green fire in her eyes that he suddenly, uh, realized made him profoundly regret killing her and killing her pups as he had heedlessly done uh, and made him realize that he, uh, as as an ecologist and an environmentalist uh, would have to learn not only like a she-wolf to think like a she-wolf, but to think like a mountain and the whole notion of thinking like a mountain uh, entered the contemporary environmental movement and returns us to uh, the, dare I say, the wisdom of indigenous peoples uh, with whom I started this book because they're the original believers, Native Americans uh, of, in animal spirits and in an animated universe And that's the largest philosophical point that this book wants to make, uh, is the legitimacy of that view that the universe is alive uh, and that there is something miraculous about that that we ignore at at our peril.
0: Well said. And I'm so glad that you wrote this book, that I got to read it, and then I got to speak with you about it today. So I am very grateful for that. I know you have many things to go to, so, um, I want to thank you for your time, but before I let you go, I want to ask you um, a traditional New Books Network final question, which is, what are you working on next?
2: Right. Well, I, I, I appreciate that question. Uh, <clears throat> since I'm an old dude and I don't know how, how how many more books I'll be able to write, but I the next one is going to be, appropriately enough, in part, a retrospective. It's a collection of uh, essays, essays that I've written, uh, often as book reviews, sometimes as standalone essays for The Nation, The New Republic, uh, The New York Times, The New York Review, The London Review, various uh, venues. Uh, and this is in keeping with my role as, you know, what I like to think of as a as a public intellectual engaged with. Uh, with politics and current affairs, as well as with uh, historical matters, I, I I came to history uh, out of my engagement uh, with con- the contemporary crisis over the Vietnam War in the late 1960s, and I have remained engaged with the uh, uh, contemporary issues and how they uh, resonate uh, with their historical past, how they came into being, basically. So. That's what these essays explore in, in many different subject areas. Uh, but there's also a, a, uh, an autobiographical essay that'll be in it that will, uh, that, that will help explain uh, some of what I told you at the beginning of this interview uh, about how I came to be a historian and how I came in particular uh, to be engaged uh, with the issues of modernity and particularly uh descent from modernity on the dark side of modernity uh through my experience uh as a cryptographer on a uh heavily armed naval ship that actually carried nuclear weapons uh despite the official denials that they existed so that's the book that that is going to be out uh in time for christmas 2024 uh yale press is going to do it <coughs> excuse me, uh, and, and uh, so I, I, uh, I urge everybody to stay tuned if they're, uh, if, if they're interested. Uh, the, the book is called Conjurers, Cranks, Provincials, Antediluvians, the off-modern in American history. And by off-modern, I wanna get away from the notion of anti-modern. These are not people who are absolutely opposed to modernity, they're they're simply off the charts, the official charts. Uh, They don't fit in, Uh, as we say, off-Broadway or off-kilter. These are people who are off-modern. They have one foot in the modern world, but uh, another one they're trying to plant somewhere else. And and they fall into these categories as cranks uh, or antediluvians, uh, but they're actually worth paying attention to because they have, from their idiosyncratic perspective, uh, they have a lot to tell us that, that we don't normally hear uh, from the people who give us the official word about modernity. Uh, so I'm thinking about everybody from uh, uh, from William James to uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan and, uh, uh, and, and uh, lots of people in between.
0: Well, that including, is,
2: yeah.
0: oh, um, including who?
2: Including my friend, John Maynard Keynes. Oh,
0: super. Well, that mm-hmm. is very much a book I look forward to, um, to reading because yes, it seems to me that I still have lots of questions about modernity and it's good to know I'm not alone. Um, and with that, Jackson Lears, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure. And to our listening audience, thank you for listening.